Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy as I highly prefer that you bring to church or a device on your phone with an app, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. And when you find the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to begin a new sermon series with you this morning through chapter 7. If you are a guest of ours, the pattern of our preaching ministry is to preach through books of the Bible verse by verse. And we've been working through the book of 1 Corinthians over the last few months. Uh, this is actually, I believe, our sixth sermon series in this book. The first five, of course, are available online through every platform that you can find. And we'd love for you to catch up on the series if you're a bit behind. But we took a few weeks off to talk about the vision and the direction of our church, and now we get to dive back in. And I, I would say that it's always encouraging for me to have the opportunity to pause and to share with you what's happening in the life of our church. But my favorite thing to do is to come to you and to get us out of the way and to not talk about church at the mill, to not talk about you or to talk about me, but to talk about what God's Word would say to us. That is the greatest message that I could ever share with you as your shepherd. Now, to be honest with you, if I'm thinking about the subject of marriage, managing seems rather discouraging, right? I mean, when we talk about marriage, you would expect us to talk about love and commitment and covenant uh, and, and maybe even the practical application of that, communication skills and resolving conflict. But managing? Why would I call this series Managing Marriage? Not because I want you to go, yeah, I'm married and I'm managing. That's not what I mean by that. Let, let me give you two, there are many, but two of the English definitions of the word manage. One is to treat with care. If you look at it in the form of a transitive verb, to achieve one's purpose, I managed to survive that car accident, or she managed to turn that business around. He managed that team very well. Now, here's what we know, and this is from the business world. Anything that is of value is worth managing. In other words, we manage anything that matters. There's some things that just don't matter to you or matter to me, so we don't manage them. I mean, it goes all the way down to where you woke up this morning. If you have the privilege of owning a home, perhaps you and the bank are working together on that home. That's the way I am. I'm in a mortgage, but I am therefore obligated to take care of my home because it is the biggest financial investment of Laurel and I's financial life. And so we have to care for our home. And then an even greater and more exponential way, when we're blessed with a family, whether we're raising our own children or we're opening our home up to adoption or foster care or we're lovingly caring for a niece or a nephew or someone in need, perhaps you're raising a grandchild right now, there are many things about their life that you Manage. You take them to the doctor's appointments. You get them the things that they need. You make sure that their education is where it should be. Why? Because you value their life, and so you manage it. If you have your own business, and I'm so grateful for the business owners in our church, the reality is if your business is profitable, if it's taking care of you financially and your employees financially, it's not because of mismanagement. It's because you're managing your business. Even in the sport of baseball, the individual hired to oversee the team and everything about the team is called the manager 
of the baseball team. And so we know that anything that is valuable, we manage. Well, then there's an if-then statement there. It's really simple logic. If marriage is valuable, then we ought to manage our marriages. They're worth our attention. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is interesting because we begin a new section in this book. See, there was correspondence happening between the Apostle Paul and the church in Corinth. Now, if you're brand new to this journey, Paul, the Apostle Paul, planted the church in Corinth and then left. Once he left, the church lost its way in many ways. Now, he still loved them. They were still certainly born again. He was writing to Christians. But it burdened him to find out they had gotten so much so wrong. In fact, we have two of the four letters he wrote to the church in Corinth. The two in your Bible are 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but due to references in the language of those letters, we know that he also wrote two other letters. In fact, this proves Paul was keenly interested in the faithfulness of this church. But the letters didn't just go one way. In fact, we have reason to believe that Paul received correspondence from Corinth. And one of the things that we know is that they were asking him about debates and dilemmas within the church. As a young, fledgling congregation, they were reaching out to the apostles saying, well, what about this or what about that? And so beginning in chapter 7, all the way through the end of the book, we find that Paul is writing in a responsive manner. We know this because there's some language that continues to pop up. One of the words that's translated in the English is concerning. In fact, we see it over and over and over again. Concerning this. There's a list on the screen. Now concerning, verse 1, verse 25 of this chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1. And then a variation of it in verse 12. And so what we know is, is that Paul had received information of questions that were being asked of him. And so part of his letter is to respond, and he talks about things like sex and marriage. We're going to talk about that this morning. Celibacy, uh, uh, whether or not you should eat the meat offered to idols in the pagan worship of Corinth. Worship, spiritual gifts, how to take up an offering in a church. And, and then even individuals are asked about, what are we supposed to do with Apollos and what he's saying and how should we view him? And so over the next few months as we unpack the rest of this book, you'll sense that Paul is taking on issue by issue. Now remember, the most prominent issue in Corinth is the rampant immorality. Corinth is a carnal place. In fact, commentators often refer to it as carnal Corinth. In the ancient world, to Corinthianize was turned into a euphemism to see a prostitute. In fact, sexuality and the open celebration of everything immoral was common language and common to the scenes of the daily life in Corinth. God moves in through the gospel, people are saved. But they come into their church with their baggage, their former lives, their former hang-ups, their former habits, their former behaviors. And over time, what we find is that when we lose our way, if we stop growing, if we're not giving ourselves to good instruction, if we're not submitting to God's will, 
We can absolutely be born again and step back into some of the behavioral patterns of our old life. This is true of any Christian in any place at any time. But it's especially true for a generation of Christians who, number one, were the first generation of Christians in Corinth, but number two, had been saved out of a cesspool of sexual immorality. And this is why, of course, uh, just before we did that sermon series over the last two weeks on vision, we walked through chapter 5 and chapter 6 where Paul is confronting sexual sin. But in the confrontation of sexual sin, promiscuity is not the only issue he's asked about. You see, inside of the Christian church, often when we think of anything sensual or sexual, we're pre-programmed to think God's answer is, you should not. Don't you do that. Don't you think about that. Don't even speak about that. It's pretty normal for a boy who's coming of age to develop his first crush. Remember your first crush? Somebody you just, your knees kind of trembled when they saw them. You couldn't quite talk in their presence. You know, I don't know what it's like to deal with the emotions of being a young woman who, with a crush. And I certainly never had that many who had a crush on me. It took me a while to crush Laurel's wheel so she'd marry me. <laughs> but I know as a young boy, transitioning from a boy in adolescence to a teenager, I remember beginning to see girls that I thought were so pretty and so cute, and I found that very intimidating. And so one of the least intimidating things you can do is have a crush on somebody you'll never meet. Maybe that distant crush. Do you remember the show Full House? There was a young woman on that show who, by the way, had one of the most godly names ever given, DJ. <laughs> DJ Tanner was her name. She was the oldest daughter. She was one of my crushes. In fact, I think I moved to her after Punky Brewster. <laughs> now, what you may or may not know about her is that her name is Candace Cameron. She's Kirk Cameron's younger sister. But she also is a devout follower of Jesus. In fact, here's a picture of her with her husband. Her name is Candace, Candace Burr now. She married, uh, actually, a, a young man who was raised in Moscow, a hockey player that she met. They're both devoted Christians. They have a family there, and she's committed to her faith and had to make some choices in her relationship as an actress because of her faith. It's a great story to read. You can Google her story and her testimony. I saw a headline this week that interested me because I've been studying the subject. She was asked about how she maintains intimacy, keeps the spark alive in her marriage. People.com, People Magazine, this was the headline. Candace Cameron Burr says, she and husband don't schedule intimacy, but they're happier after sex. The subtitle, Candace Cameron Burr says, she and husband uh, Valerie Burr, he goes by Val, make time for each other and still love each other physically. Now, why would People Magazine think this is newsworthy? I mean, for me, having been raised around Christians and having been in a Christian marriage for 22 years, I would just assume that it would be understood that intimacy and the sex life between a man and a woman in his marriage and in her marriage is not only a good thing, it is a healthy thing. 
Well, it goes back to what I said a few moments ago. There is this concept in the world that because Christians do clearly accept God's definition for the place of God-ordained sexual expression, which is only between one man and one woman inside of marriage, that must mean that Christians view intimacy, sensuality, and the sexual part of our lives as an enemy of God. In fact, this is what the world does. The world idolizes more sex and demonizes married sex. What if I told you the Lord was just the opposite? That God's will is to put on a pedestal the beautiful gift of intimacy between a man and a woman and the health of which it brings inside their marriage and to say all other expressions of sexual activity are against God's will because they ultimately hurt people and dishonor his original plan that he ordained in the garden between Adam and Eve before sin affected everything. And so in the midst of a world, and sometimes Christians, thinking God's answer to intimacy at all times, in all places, and in every circumstances, you should not. I had to call this sermon, you should. Oh, yeah, you should. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Let me read to you from God's Word. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should, notice not should not, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if you're in the room and you're single, listen to verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul is single, he's not married. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, one of these things, one of the things that happens when you read a passage like this is you can quickly find yourself pretty confused by what it looks at first to be some contradictions. I mean, we get a verse like verse 1 that says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman. But then we get down to verse uh, 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. This is why Bible study matters. It's why context matters. It's why we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Have you ever heard someone or been around someone who took a phone call? You could not hear what the other person is saying, and so you're riding in the car with your husband or your wife, and they're on the phone, and you're trying to piece together the conversation, but the difficulty is you don't hear the person's voice on the other side. You're simply hearing your voice, or their voice, rather, talking. This is the challenge we have in reading letters like this. We don't have the letter that the Corinthians sent to Paul asking all these questions. But when we back up and we study this letter and we begin to piece it together, we can make sense of what's happening. 
Christians, like any other group of people, have to avoid extremes. Of course, the extreme in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is the sexual immorality that is running amok in Corinth and bleeding over into the church. But there's another extreme that Christians have often gone to in relationships to sex, sexuality, sensuality, and intimacy. And that is to say, well, if there's so much danger with it, why don't we just do away with it altogether? And why don't we make the highest good and the highest form of godliness for people to be non-sexual? The problem with that is the Bible. Because while the world is twisted and certainly corrupted sex, sex was not the world's idea. Being sexual, like being physical, being emotional, being spiritual, is about being human. It's an undeniable part of who we are. And so one of the things we begin to recognize in this passage is that Paul has been dealing with those who were immoral. Now he's got to deal with those who are trying to be amoral. There apparently was a faction within Corinth saying, you know what, with all this immorality and all this sensuality, we need to shut marriage down and we need to all live celibate lives before the Lord. There was actually an effort to attack the existence of and the gift of sex within marriage. So, so in dealing with this, the first thing we see is how Paul responds. Paul's response is, pretty simple. It can be summarized this way. You should marry and nurture a healthy sex life with your spouse. This is a good thing. Now you may say, well, what about verse 1? Well, your modern translators help you a little bit. If you'll look at verse 1, you'll notice, if you have a modern translation, that some quotation marks have been added about six or seven words in. Now concerning the matter's which you wrote. In other words, Paul is getting ready to quote a portion of the letter he received from Corinth. Now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So apparently this slogan, this teaching, had emerged from the church. And there is some truth to it, but not total truth. It is good for a single man or a single woman not to have sexual relations with another person. It is good for a married couple to put sex on hold for a particular season of their life for spiritual reasons, sometimes for physical reasons, maybe for reasons of illness or pregnancy. There are times inside of a married life where there is no sexual intimacy for a season and it is a good thing. But what they were doing is they were taking it to extremes and they were trying to convince people to either reject marriage or if you are married, reject your spouse sexually and physically. And heaven only knows the problems that this could cause. It's an example of how often in Christians, when we see something wrong, even with the right motives, we swing too far the other direction. We say, if this is the line God doesn't want me to cross, if I'll draw 27 lines between this line and that line, I will never get there. The famous ones to do this in the New Testament, of course, were the Pharisees. They had rules on top of rules, on top of rules, on top of rules. And when you peel back all of the rules and the rituals that Jesus clashed up against, 
you'll find that somewhere in the past, the motive was probably pure. There probably was an effort to live according to the law as given. But one of the things Jesus encountered over and over is that they weren't trying to live according to the law of God. They were trying to live according to the rituals and rules of generation after generation after generation of people who had passed them down orally that had almost become disconnected from the whole reason God gave the law. In fact, when Jesus is correcting the Pharisees, often he will say, you have heard it said, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. The reason he said you have heard it said is because it wasn't written in the law. It was just said about things that were said, about things that were said, about things that were said that might have been written in the law at some point about some part of the law. And so people were literally overwhelmed with this legalistic burden to approach God. Well, the Corinthians, in responding to the over-sexualized culture they were living, had gone the other direction. And so Paul says, wait a minute. Yes, there is some truth that celibacy and purity can focus our hearts and our lives and it makes sure that we contain and keep our sexual feelings at bay before the Lord and they honor him. But no, we should not reject marriage and we shouldn't reject marriage, one, because it is the natural way in which we were designed to express our lives sexually, which is why we get to verse 2. Look at verse 2. This is what the Bible says. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Ladies, I'm going to get into this a little bit later, but this is one of the things that's so fascinating to me. Often in modern, more progressive Christianity or liberals, uh, liberal Christianity, there is an assault on the Pauline epistles as being chauvinistic. Uh, this usually is a deeper issue where they want to question the inerrancy of Scripture altogether. And, and by the way, once you abandon your high view of God's Word as being inerrant and infallible, you've abandoned Christianity. You may call yourself Christian, but you've abandoned the Christ of the cross because the Christ of the cross affirmed that every word in the Word is inspired by God through the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the human authors. That's why we have such a high view of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why it would be uh, a terrible betrayal of this trust for me to not stand here with my Bible and read my Bible and explain my Bible to you in your Bible because the authority in the preaching event is not the platform or the podium or the position or the preacher or the personality. It is the Word of God. And so when we, when we get to the Word of God, what we find is that when we dig, we find this to be an incredibly liberating passage for women. It would have been very easy for a first century man to say, yeah, my wife belongs to me. Because in a first century world, and honestly, not to, not, not to maybe about a century ago, women were treated as less than citizens and possessions in many cultures. But Paul says, your wife belongs to you. But then he says, your husband belongs to you. This mutual ownership. Paul sees no polygamy as honoring God. Paul sees no treatment of a wife as a property as honoring God. Paul sees this dual ownership. This goes all the way back to the Genesis account. When God had created everything and he looked at Adam, what did he say in Genesis chapter 2? 
Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make someone who will come alongside him. This is why Christians rightly celebrate marriage. It's also why twisted versions of religion eventually attack marriage. What did Paul tell Timothy? Look in your Bible, or look on the screen, I'll put it there. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. By the way, they won't know it's teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. One of the telltale signs of a cult is the forbidden items that are given to us by God. It's about controlling and manipulating people. And one of the things that Paul does here is he says, no, no, no. It, it is good because of sexual temptation in Corinth. Now, now, I think it's important to clarify something. Verse 2 clearly makes the connection that marriage protects us from sexual immorality. But when we look at the whole testimony of Scripture, we cannot argue that sex is the only reason Christians marry. Sex is not the only reason Christians marry, but it is one of the reasons Christians should marry. And I think it's important to acknowledge both. I would never tell a young couple that they should marry only that they wouldn't live in sin, only because they burn for one another. No, no, no. You have to make sure you're compatible. You have to make sure it's God's will. You have to make sure that the Lord has discerned in your spirit that this is the man or this is the woman that I'm going to give my life to, that mutual ownership. But I would also say that there is no place in adult Christians. I'm not talking about teenagers trying to figure things out who are in love and have all these plans for one another that change all the time. But I'm talking about once you reach an adulthood, I never encourage Christians in some form of long engagement. I always, if given the opportunity, challenge young Christians that I meet and they say, oh yeah, I've met, oh yeah, we're engaged, but he's in grad school and I've got three years of this and two years of that. So we've set a date, it's in 2027, we're excited about it. You know, part of me as a man go, there's one of two realities here. Either you got a tremendous amount of self-control or you already sleeping together. And I'm going to tell you which reality is usually the reality. Christian couples who are in love and in the Lord and are adults of age need to get married because marriage should be celebrated. It is not to be avoided. Well, we can't afford to. What, does it cost more to feed each other once you're married? What does that mean? Talk to any old married couple. Go down the senior adult hallway and ask our precious old couples who've been married 60 and 70 years. Tell them, what was the sweetest time in your life? They'll say, well, when we got married, we didn't have two nickels to rub together. But oh, we were in love and God was good and it was faithful and I wouldn't trade those years for nothing. It's like children. If you wait till you can afford children, you never will have children. And if you ever think you can afford them, have one. <laughs> Just go ahead and have one. They will suck the life and the money out of you. Somebody asked me the other day, Pastor, what's your retirement plan? I said, I don't know, but I'm making Costco rich. <laughs> Sex is not the only reason Christians are to marry. 
But it is one of the reasons Christian marriage should be celebrated because according to the teaching of God's word, it is the one and only place that you can enjoy the love of your life as the lover of your life. So that's his response. But as is so often the case, he not only gives his response, Paul gives his reason. The reason really begins in verse 3. Paul's reason's pretty simple, and I'll put it on the screen for you to read. Healthy marital sex protects Christians from immorality. Look look what happens, and we'll transition, so I'll I'll begin, I'll pick back up in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, Now, Paul goes on to this explanation. Notice this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, And likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then Paul gets real practical. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because... Of your lack of self-control. Now, if you were to kind of unpack this explanation, there's two parts of it, this reason. The first one, Paul says, there's obligation here. So one of the things that happens is you see the world, and I talked about this in the previous series, chasing the next greatest thing in sensuality. All you got to do is go to the grocery store and stand in line. Look at the cover of every magazine, whether it be men's magazines or women's magazines. There will be at least one, probably two, headings on the magazine that will talk about spicing up your love life, making yourself more attractive, getting more people to find you attractive sexually. And for men, it's usually driven toward masculinity, and for women, of course, it's centered around your physical outward beauty. Now, now we know that this never works because if it worked, shouldn't the world be satisfied? You don't ever meet somebody that says, yeah, I finally figured out the right amount of partners, the right amount of experiences, or the right amount of experimentation. No, the world is continuing to wallow in the mud of immorality, hoping that it will bring fulfillment. We know that it will not. As I remind you from chapter 5 and chapter 6, The great deception of the enemy in relationship to sex in our world today is that the reason that there's so much emptiness on the other side of sexual exploitation and experimentation and sexual immorality is that the world is asking sex to do what it was never meant to do. It cannot be the center of your life. It cannot be your reason for existence. It cannot be your primary defining moment. And what we find inside of the sexual revolution and the homosexual revolution and the transgender revolution is it becomes the defining characteristic of their whole purpose for being. We were designed sexual. It is a powerful part of who we are, but it is not all of who we are. In fact, every human being in my life represents a rich part of my experience and only one human being in my life represents the part of my life that I express sexually. Does that mean that all those other humans and all those other experiences and all those other relationships don't profoundly impact me? Of course not. 
all those people and all those relationships and all those purposes and all those visions and all those priorities matter greatly. But when you set all those aside and you elevate your sexual exploitation, your sexual stimulation, or your sexual experimentation as the God of your life, you're always going to be groping for more because it will not satisfy. And yet, in the midst of this culture, Paul in Corinth has some people who have said, well, I'm just going to stop all together. And Paul says, wait a minute. That, there's a problem with that. The problem is you don't have the right to deprive your spouse of this important part of your marriage. That's exactly the wording he uses. He actually uses words related to debt and payment. Not my words, Paul's words. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 3. The husband should give. Notice we haven't heard of should not yet. Should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. In, in, in essence, Paul is teaching something about the nature of sex. Let me give it to you in three statements. Number one, sex inside of marriage is not a bonus. It's not a bonus. It's a part of a healthy marriage. It changes in seasons of life. I recognize that our lives in our 20s and 30s will look different than our lives in our 50s, 60s, and 70s, but it's not seen to be a bonus. Sex is not a bargaining tool. It's not a bargaining tool you use to manipulate your spouse. But also, sex is not about you. You may find it very pleasing and very satisfying, but if you want to rob your marriage of the sexual intimacy God intended, make it about you. See, this is how it works. And again, I recognize that all ears in the room aren't equal. And I recognize that it's important for the church to be sensitive. So I'll keep the language very general. When a man or a woman puts the needs of their spouse first in every area, including the bedroom, everyone's needs are always met. When couples break down in their intimacy, one or both of them are being selfish, manipulative, or abusive. Sex is not a bonus, but it's not a bargaining tool, and it's not about you. And so when you make it about your spouse, you will be sensitive and patient to the other areas of her life which may affect her ability to be intimacy, to be intimate. But ladies, when you make it about your spouse, you'll be sensitive and willing to recognize that for him it is a very physical thing and a very deep need in his life and it provides for him affirmation and confidence that he feels wanted by you. And so what Paul is saying is, don't go into it with my as your first word. Go into it with, I have been given my life. My life is encapsulated with my body. I give this to you for God's glory in the honor and the intimacy of this bedroom, which should not be defiled by any other person. So the obligation there is then followed by an explanation, and the explanation is really two parts. There's a theology of ownership, and then there's a practical application. Look at verse 4. This is what the Bible says in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if Paul ended here, I could see how critics of the Bible would say, look, look, there goes those Christians again reducing women 
to being nothing more than pawns at their husband's desire and demand. That's not what it says, though. No sooner does he get this out of his lips than he goes on to say in the second phrase, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I cannot express in words how counterculture this would have been in a Greco-Roman Corinth. The idea that a man in antiquity would be under the authority of a woman in this matter is so far, and it must be from God. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, when you get married and the two become one, you become one in name. You become one in home. You become one in family. You become one in purpose and parenting. One spiritually, one financially. And yes, you become one physically and sexually, so you no longer exist for your pleasure, you exist for our pleasure. The telltale sign of a marriage that's in trouble is when you start dividing those things up. His money, my money, his place, my place. What he needs, what she needs. His this, his that, her this, her that. No, no, no. The marriage demands of Christians oneness in all areas and in all things. And this is what the scripture is teaching us. But then Paul gets real practical. I love the fact that he's not so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Here's the deal. If you are healthy and of a sexually active age and you enjoy the sexual relationship of your spouse, you begin to desire it. It is a good thing. Now, the desire that men and women have often manifests itself differently, and every person is different. I strongly discourage Christian couples from trying to play some comparison game. God has designed you for your spouse and your marriage, and you strike the balance that works for you. But you desire it. It is a thing of deep desire. So what could happen if there's a deprivation? If there's someone who cuts another person off from this expression that has already been experienced? This is why we tell young people, we encourage them not to become sexually active. It's much more difficult to stop being sexually active once you become sexually active because your flesh has experienced it. And so we encourage and we teach God's word that he commands us to remain virgins until our wedding night. And many people have fallen in this area, found forgiveness, and began to walk in the purity of the Lord. But they find it as a difficult struggle because they have experienced, they have unlocked those feelings and those emotions. They have been into something that God did not intend until they married, which makes the battle even stronger. And so inside of marriage, Paul knows good and well that if a couple, man or woman, begins to deprive someone of their sexual rights, as he determines here, as he says, you're going to open up the door for temptation, which is why in verse 5, we know verse 1 was him reacting to those who were trying to say, let's just everybody stop having sex. Look what he says in verse 5. He says in verse 5, do not deprive, that's the first do not of the passage, by the way, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So there are times, there are seasons. He references one that is spiritual. There are other reasons that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. And notice this, if you've ever wondered how sin works, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when we fail sexually, is it Satan or is it us? Yes. 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 It's both. 
which means you can't blame it all on him. And you also can't blame it all on you. The enemy is working against you. One of the things I tell, uh, especially men whose wife leaves them or abandons them, perhaps they lose a wife in a divorce they did not want. They are the innocent person. Often it's the women, but there are men in our church who are righteous and are walking with the Lord and their wife has walked out and said, I don't want you anymore. And it crushes them and it breaks their heart. I always say to them, be very careful. The enemy will send a woman. Be very careful. Watch who you're with and who you're around, and you will find there will be some who will emerge who will long to comfort you in the loving conversation and tenderness of a woman's voice, and your heart will be drawn to it. Be careful, brother. Be careful. Say the exact same thing to women. When you find yourself abandoned and your heart is hamburger and you're in a divorce you didn't want, and all of a sudden you're dealing with the crushing feelings of why was I not what he needed and he wanted? How could he abandon us? Be careful, the enemy will send a man. Which is why we always encourage believers to run to the refuge of the church, Christian men and women, married couples to surround you with so that your focus is on the Lord and you heal, then in due season, if he supplies a man or a woman for you and you're free to remarry, as the innocent party of a divorce, you will know and it will be affirmed by the testimony of godly people around you, your own heart, the truth of God's word, and the spirit working. And when all those things line up, you avoid the rebound into another unhealthy relationship. I love the fact that my Bible is heavenly and theological, but it's practical and real. There's one last part and I'm done. Paul's reflection is interesting. Some of you are single in the room. Often in churches, because we stress marriage in that marriages are in trouble and we want to address it, we fail the single among us. We somehow elevate the status of married Christians. There is no biblical grounds for saying that if you are single, you are somehow a second-class Christian. The Lord Jesus never married. Paul here is single. There's some debate as to whether or not at some point in his previous life had he been married. We, we don't know, but we know at this point he's single and living a celibate life. And singleness is used of God in mighty ways, which is why Paul says in his reflection, and I close with verse 6, now as a concession, not a command. So Paul, with the tenderness of a pastor, says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to say something. I wish that all were as I am myself. In other words, Paul says, in the midst of all this garbage, I wish you could be devoted to the Lord and your celibacy and your singleness. But then, no sooner than he says that, he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Most people statistically marry. Most people I meet in their teens and 20s want to marry. But there is, scripturally, a gift of singleness. I don't know that you can make the argument that gift is a forever gift. I've seen people walk in singleness for decades and then marry. During the time they were single, they operated in the gift of singleness. When they're married, they operate in the gift of married. I don't think the Bible defines it that distinctly. I do know this, though. There is a freedom and a joy that comes in singleness and celibacy which can be leveraged for the kingdom in ways you cannot leverage the kingdom when you're married. The number one concern in my life is what the Lord wants me to do. 
But since December of the year 2000, the number two concern is what is best for Laurel. And because of she and I's marriage, the number three, four, five, six, seven, eight, a bunch of concerns later are what is best for our children. We've actually lived this sermon out. You should, we did. And so the reality is when we think about that, I can never look at an opportunity that God may lay before me and not think, how will this affect my family? That's not a sinful thing, but it is a binding thing. It's a bind, a bound, I'm bound in a good way, but it is a bind. Whereas someone who is single and living celibate before the Lord is completely free of any marital obligation and can make decisions freely based on what God's will would be. Which means in the room there are three people, so there are three challenges, and I'm going to pray. Here are the three people. If you're married, God's word would say you should nurture your sex life and your intimacy with your spouse. There are a thousand different things we could talk about. There are a lot of challenges that people face. Age, all those things affect that. But you should nurture intimacy with your spouse. And by the way, guys, I'm not saying that every wife in the room should feel this amazing amount of pressure to be more of what you want. I'm saying that a husband and a wife should look at one another and say, the Lord's will is that we honor him in our intimacy. How can we do that more faithfully? Secondly, if you're single and you desire to be married, find contentment in Christ and leverage your singleness and celibacy during this season. The best people who prepare for marriage, stop seeing marriage as the focus of their life. They begin to serve the king and say, Lord, you were matchmaking before eHarmony was eHarmony. And now eHarmony's so old, nobody uses eHarmony. I will trust you. I will be open. I will seek to build relationships with godly men and women, those of the opposite sex, and I am open that one of them may be your provision for me, but I am not going to live my life defined by whether or not I'm dating somebody or somebody finds me interesting. I will find my contentment in you. And then there are those of you who I honor and admire who not only are single, but you believe God's will is for you to remain single. Maybe you don't believe you're biblically free to remarry, there are biblical ramifications for divorces that are out of God's will. And you may say, I'm not free to remarry again because of something I've done. You may say, I'm of an age where I don't plan to remarry. Most of our older ladies say, I already trained one. I'm not training another one. We have young people in our church who have shared with me, I, I don't know that marriage is a part of my life, and I'm fine with that. You are not incomplete. We are complete in Christ. So rejoice in the freedom you have. Use it for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the opportunity to be reminded that there's not an area of our life you don't speak to. Thank you for the privilege of recognizing that you really are the center of it all. It's just hard for a man who loves Jesus to hurt, abuse, manipulate his wife in any way, including sexually, if you're the center of his life. It's hard for a woman who loves Jesus and truly seeks him with all of her heart to hurt or to criticize or to attack emotionally and verbally a husband that you've provided. 
Now, we all fall short. There's not a marriage in this room immune from arguments and tension and struggles. Lord, by your power and in your name, we don't walk away. We stay the course. We fight through the difficulty. And we pursue one another with Christ as our God. And then, God, if you call us into a season of singleness, whether we've never married or we plan to never marry again, we rejoice that we don't need a spouse to be complete in Christ. That our completeness is at the cross and not at a marriage altar. That a wedding ring is a good thing, but it's not the only way God has ordained men and women to serve. I pray for those in our church who are living in an over-sexualized world, a life of purity and celibacy. I know the enemy comes at them. I know there are desires that are deep. And so I pray for them and their encouragement, Lord, for them to find grace when they stumble, and for them to walk in the newness of Christ that you promise. Lord, for the single, for the married, for the widowed, for the widower, for the student who longs for this day in their future. Jesus at the center of it all. Church family, let's stand and sing that as our anthem this morning. Jesus at the center of it all. Sing that out, church. Jesus at the center of Church family, if you want to pray with a member of our prayer team, they're in the prayer room this morning. If you want to take just a moment and pray with your spouse here at this altar, it's going to remain open even as we transition. If you want to talk to a pastor, we're here for you. We love you. God bless you. You're dismissed.